I'm hoping everybody brought this back uh, from last time, the uh, defect of dispensationalism pages. Uh, there are three pages, and I kind of just stopped working through the last portion of page three because it was the, uh, really the heart and soul of where Sandlin had gone with the book, and I didn't want to cram too much into that lesson, which was getting pretty long anyhow. Um, I had also handed out in the past this uh, pretty thing that I made up, and just a quick review of that. Well, let's pray first, and then I'll do a quick review of that. Lord, I thank you for this time in um, Sunday school here. I ask that we would be ever learning and, and trying to understand your word and your world uh, for the sake of your son's kingdom. Amen. So I had given just the three, a three-perspective thing here of post-millennialism with its view of the future, of premillennial dispensationalism with its view of the future, and then the, the bottom one was amillennialism with its view of the future. And, and a quick uh, reminder is they all kind of start with the work of Jesus and that he has now ascended to heaven, so Jesus is ascended to heaven. And he is ruling from heaven right now. Uh, Post-millennialism believes that it continue to increase and be positive as a rule. Things will get better and better upon the earth. And, uh, and then he will return when things are almost like paradise. He will return as the second coming. The final judgment takes place and eternity begins. So it's the lake of fire for, for many and it's paradise for many others. Um, the premillennial dispensational view is the one that's pretty popular in uh, common um, discussions these last 20, 30, 40 years. And that's the idea that, yes, he has ascended to heaven and he will come back with a second coming and, and, and judgment. But they have lots of bells and whistles that things will not get steadily better, but they'll get yeah, probably steadily worse, especially when a lot of goofy things start to happen. Goofy being the uh, appearance, perhaps, of the Antichrist, you know, and this, this marking uh, sign and the tribulation that begins of seven-year period um, with the potential for the church to be taken away secretly, kind of not secretly only because everybody's going to know it because there's going to be pilots disappearing and airplanes crashing into mountains and and little children uh, with their mommies walking, and all of a sudden all you've got is a stroller and some clothes. You know, that kind of silliness. But that would be the, uh, the rapture of the church. It's like Jesus not coming back a second time, but coming partially back in the clouds for a moment to take his people away because of all the bad things that would happen in the tribulation. There's different views that way. Some say the church will suffer no tribulation, you know, they believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Some say, oh, you're going to go through it three and a half years. Then Christ will take them away. That would be a mid-tribulation rapture of the church. And then some say, no, we're diehard. We're going through it all. We're going to suffer what we have to suffer. After seven years, he'll come back and take us away in the, uh, the post-tribulation rapture. Anyway, whatever little tribulation game you're playing, um, Jesus will come back according to this scheme and he will set up his kingdom upon the earth. So he'll dispatch 
uh, away the uh, Antichrist and, and all that ails the earth during that seven-year period, a seven-year period where the Jews are especially um, being persecuted. Uh, he'll come back. He'll set up uh, his throne in Jerusalem where there will have been a, um, um, a great change in who's the boss. And then he starts to reign for a thousand years, it says. A thousand years he'll reign, and he'll put these different enemies under his feet. People will start complying with him. Even non-believers will start to comply with his rule, with his law, and they'll, they'll begin to do good um, on the surface at least. But uh, deep down after that thousand years, and even Satan will be bound. He'll be kept away from any, any um, what would I say, uh, influence. And, uh, but after that thousand years, Satan will be let go again, and uh, all those non-believers who, you know, have been compliant upon the earth, but their hearts weren't really in it, they'll revolt at that point with Satan, and then they'll come against the people of God, and Jesus will say, it is finished, and, and he will judge them in the moment, and, and the final judgment will occur, lake of fire, paradise will, will, will begin. So in this view, Jesus did come back a second time, but it was a thousand years before the end of everything, before the judge, for final judgment. Okay? Then the final view, a non-millennial view, which has been more common to Reformed people, is also Jesus ascended. He's ruling right now from heaven. Things will go on until he comes back again, which sounds a lot like post-millennialism, but it's different because amillennialism doesn't necessarily think things are going to get better. It's just going to be a matter of Jesus saving people, bringing people into his kingdom. Um, and uh, when the end comes, it will come. He will return, and uh, he'll deal with Satan and non-believers and believers all at that time. Uh, this second coming is when the resurrection uh, of the dead occurs. Um, for these two, it's of both believers and non-believers, the resurrection of the dead, for this middle view, they got like a couple of resurrections of the dead, all right? And um, it, it's so convoluted, and there's so many viewpoints, but this is, this is the thing that Sandlin wants to do when he's talking about disp premillennial dispensationalism. He wants to show you one thing, and that's what we'll spend the rest of today on, is that the people of God have forever been one people. It's not, it's not like Israel is the people of God, and then... Jesus comes and the church of Jews and Gentiles are the people of God for a time. And then they go rapturing away and so now Israel is the people of God again. That's what dispensational premillennialism would have you believe. You've got two different peoples of God. Israel and the church. And then, so Israel, church, Israel. And they believe, dispensational premillennialisms, that we are living in what they call the church age. This is the church age. It will end at the secret escape, the rapture, and then Israel will be the, in the limelight again. Sandlin rejects that, um, and uh, so does postmillennialism. I believe most uh, traditional amillennialists wouldn't even talk in, in those terms. That would be foolishness to them as well. However... I think a lot of people from the Reformed faith who would have normally been amillennial have been influenced greatly by the radio preachers and TV preachers of the last 50 years and books, tons of books 
Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Some of you might have heard that, remember that. Um, anytime you hear uh, titles of books that talk about Armageddon and uh, um, the rapture and so on, it's all coming from this middle, middle viewpoint, not, not from our traditional viewpoint nor from a post-millennial things getting better viewpoint. I don't know, any, anybody have any questions since the last two times and your own reading and your own looking at this chart? Because if not, um, what Sandlin is going to do is going to say, there's only one people of God, and that's not going to change. It's always going to be the church. So he's going to dispel that idea that there's two peoples of God. And he's going to say, no, there's one people of God, and I'll prove it to you. Okay, any questions or comments or thoughts um, on the past couple of weeks? issues. Anybody that has a hard time and thinks this guy's off, off his rocker, that's fine too. I mean, you grow up for, for 40, 50, 60, 70 years hearing things and then someone comes along in a book and says, what you've kind of been believing is, is all wrong. I mean, <laughs> it takes a while to get your head wrapped around it. Lynn? It's in that Galatians, like what Bob's, Bob's working through. I don't know. Is it in James, the circumcision? Okay. I, I, okay. And what he's going to do in, in this, what he has done in this chapter is he says, well, here's the clear New Testament the proof that the Jesus and the apostles considered whenever they talked about Israel or Zion and the, the people of God, they considered all things for the church. And so the church is, is, is Jew and Gentile now. The doors have been opened and the wall of separation or curtain of separation has been uh, torn apart. And, and there's, that's never going to change, okay? And so I think, yeah, when you read some of the uh, uh, New Testament writings, they're wrestling with some of those Jew-Gentile questions. But also, um, they got to see some, or hear from Jesus' own mouth, some real negative things coming in the future, right? So the, his followers were hearing some real negative things coming in the future. But what, um, what we don't take into consideration today, some, is those future things that Jesus was talking about is our past, that they already, the, the temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another. That was in 70 A.D. Sacrifices ceased. 
That was in 70 AD. A lot of those uh, terrible things happened to the generation that Jesus was talking to, not some future generation millennia upon millennia later. So, yeah, the works, uh, your faith by works. Okay. I think he would probably refer to it, and I th- many theologians have referred to even Abraham and his descendants who loved and worshipped God by faith, right? Some didn't, right? Jacob, he loved, Esau, he hated, all this kind. They were the church. They were God's assembly. They were God's people, right? And they were primarily Hebrew. And if you wanted to join with them to follow that God, you had to take the sign of circumcision. You had to do things. You had to be baptized, too, back then. And do, do certain things because of the covenant with Abraham. Um, but a, a, the covenant with Abraham was, was with the great promise that all nations would be blessed and that uh, he would be in the inheritor of all, all things, basically. And so when Jesus came, came and said, Abraham was speaking about me, I am the seed to whom this was all promised. And he says, there's no longer sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. There is no king to wait for. I am, I am the king. And, and, um, and all of creation, I inherit. And so these, these, these things that separated Jew from Gentile, they, they fulfilled their purpose. He, he erased them, in a sense, or put them aside. Yes. Yeah. Right. No. Yeah. Well, and that was the wrestling match, I think, that Lydia is even referring to. Yeah. So here you got, let's say before Jesus came, if you had a Galatian person wanting to join with the Jewish people and, and go to synagogue and become a a Christian, in a sense, prior to Christ, then they would have to do some things, and the, and the Jews would have put them through that because God said, if someone, you know, this is how you deal with a convert, right? And, um, but, but then when Jesus came and he announced things differently, and he, he said some things, I think one of the things Sandlin will mention in, in, in part of this chapter um, is uh, that's, that's no more. You know, now... All nations come to me. Uh, I've taken down the dividing wall. And so um, it's no longer that these non-Jews had to convert and join with the Jews. Now it's like it's as much theirs as it, as it was the Jews. You know? And that won't go backwards. So in other words, it's always going to be Jew and Gentile. We're always going to be uh, the church until he returns. Um, but no, I think that's part of the wrestling through because the Jews are like, what gives? they got to be circumcised, don't they? And, and that's where Paul and Peter have been learning some things by the Spirit and, and their experiences with uh, Cornelius and others. And uh, that sheet came down with the animals on it, you know, which the Jews were not supposed to eat. And he says, you know, it's all, eat it. It's, I've made it clean. What God has made clean, you know. So, all right, let's uh, take a peek at uh, this sheet, if that's good for now, at this sheet that I handed out. Hopefully you brought it back. I can tell you this, I've got uh, 
I've got only four here that I can give away. Anybody? Oh, sure, the non-bringer backers and the new couple. <laughs> no, I just can't. Um, I don't think so. Uh, let me, uh, let me, uh, I, I did text, I, I did email you that PDF. You what? Oh, wouldn't? Oh, yeah, h- hang on, hang on. I think I got one here. Let me see which one I've got writing on. Yeah. So I'm actually just on the last page here of this. Uh, okay. Okay. I'm on the last page of this uh, three-page thing, and I'll just quickly go through this. Um, the first one is that's marked uh, page five and seven, let's say. We'll just refresh here. Um, it's Romans. It, it refers to Romans 11, chapter 11. It indicates there can be only one people. The olive tree, it says, combines both, and this is Paul writing about the olive tree, combines both ethnic Jew and Gentile into the church of Jesus Christ. The Jewish branches were the natural branches, and the Gentiles were wild branches that were grafted into the tree. Together, they became one olive tree. God offers only one single way of redemption for all peoples, languages, and nations, okay? So uh, Paul's point is there is, you know, first of all, Gentiles, don't get proud, okay, about who you are as compared to the Jews. The olive tree that God has planted was Jewish, and then he grafted in you Gentiles into this one olive tree. How much easier would it be for the natural branches to be part of this tree, right? And so, uh, verses, uh, uh, pages 7 through 12, Sandlin goes on, it's his second argument that the people of God are the people of God, one people. It says here, the covenant made with Abram applies to both Jew and Gentile. The key ingredient is faith. Dispensationalists focus on the physical seed of Abraham, whereas Jesus and the apostles argue that Abraham's seed is determined fundamentally by religion, not race. And um, there are different, different verses in, in, throughout the New Testament where it says it's not someone who's uh, of the, uh, of the uh, flesh of Abraham, but it's someone who's of the faith of Abraham. And even Gentiles who have the faith, are you going to be saying that uh, they are not indeed descendants of Abraham then? Galatians 3, H, it says, Galatians 3 is a chapter Sandlin posits as important to our understanding the makeup of the people of God. In verses 27 through 29, Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ, Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's offspring. Heirs according to promise. I would point out there in Galatians 3, it does say there's no slave or free, uh, male or female, Jew or Greek. That doesn't mean there weren't actually people who are Galatians and people who were Ephesians and people, you know, there were French people, there, there have been Spanish people, there's been different pe- people, but what makes them one of Christ's isn't different, Okay. We become one of Christ's by faith, and uh, then baptism into the into His church, and um, and there is no distinguishing 
It's the same way for male and female. It's the same way for slave and free. It's the same way for the Frenchman and the um, Mexican. Okay. And then I, Jesus, did not identify the seed of Abraham with mere physical lineage either. John 8, 39 through 40, it records this. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did, okay? Just because they were uh, physical descendants, that meant nothing. They were about to kill Jesus. It meant nothing that they were physical descendants of Abraham. They were destined for hell. They did, Jesus said somewhere else, the works of your father, the devil. Okay? They are not right with God, never have been right with God. The only people who have ever been right by, with God is those who had faith in, in God, in the, in the true God, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? In the God of David, in the God of, of uh, our Lord Jesus. And that was written to the Galatians, right? Oh, I, might jump, I jumped down. Sorry, I was down in I. That was written, that was said by Jesus in John 8, 39 through 40. Sandlin asserts, J. Sandlin asserts that believing Gentiles are entitled to all the promises given to Abraham as the believing Jews are entitled to all the promises given to Abraham. Now, uh, oftentimes people will say, well, but what about the land, right? I mean, the land was given to Abraham, and that's just that, that piece of land in, in um, Israel or Palestine or whatever you want to say, call it these days. But... Um, uh, the argument would be from the New Testament writer or from Sandlin himself would be, no, it is so much more that God was giving Abraham. Not just the land, all land. A a Abraham was the great inheritor of all things, all peoples. And um, that is the way that uh, it should be understood because that is the God that Jesus came to, to serve and to, to be. He wasn't going to be... Um, as the son or the seed of Abram, he wasn't going to be shortchanged by getting a sliver of land in the Middle East. Jesus owns, owns all things. And then the, another argument on pages 12 through 15, his final argument, it has to do with the, the language of new covenant. And the new covenant um, was prophesied by Jeremiah and Ezekiel in particular, and they are fulfilled, Sandlin says, in our present day. Both appeared to be intended for ethnic, physical Israel. However, the New Testament applies the new covenant to spiritual Israel. And I guess I'd like to just turn to pages 12 through 15 uh, to make sure we uh, see where he's refer referencing this. So what he's saying there is if you just read Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you'd go, oh, he's talking about Hebrew people. He's talking about the Israelites. And it, and it sounds just like he is. And he was talking to the Israelites. But the New Testament comes, comes around and applies those same New Covenant passages and the New Covenant language to the church, to both Jew and Gentile, to Jesus' people. If you looked at page uh, 13... Uh, starting in the, the, second, uh, the first 
uh, new paragraph on page 13. It says, if we, if we were reading the Old Testament, we would be obliged to agree with the dispensationalists that the new covenant is made only of ethnic Israel, the physical seed of Abraham, and Gentiles who joined national Israel. Like we were saying, they got baptized, I mean, circumcised, etc., etc. But, he says, we must read all of the Bible to discover God's teaching on any topic, and it is important to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, a later, though certainly not more accurate or superior, revelation. The New Testament, or NT, is more authoritative than the Old Testament, and it does not give a higher, and it does not give a higher ethical or instructional standard than the Old Testament. But the New Testament does give a more complete picture of God's will than the Old Testament. This is the case with the New Covenant. It is a prime example of how we need to let the New Testament interpret the Old. The first intimation that Israel, or the house of Jacob, mentioned in the Old Testament as the exclusive recipients of the New Covenant may not mean only national ethnic Jews is found in our Lord's institution of the communion at the Last Supper. Okay, So... Um, on that intimate occasion with his disciples, he identified his future shed blood on the cross as symbolized by the fruit of the vine with the new covenant. Okay, so every Sunday when we participate in the Lord's Supper, um, we, we remember the words that Jesus said, you know, do this in remembrance of me. He gave us what he called, this is the new covenant in my blood, all right? This is the new covenant in my body. And, and he was referencing Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where it discusses the new covenant. Jesus applied it to when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Okay, So he's using the new covenant language, and he's giving us the, the communion. And it's not just Jews, but it's all of God's people. God's people are one. All right. Uh, we'll skip down in that paragraph just a hair. For we can hardly surmise that when Christ implied that his bloodshedding death inaugurated the new covenant, he meant to limit that covenant to physical national Jews. In several parables, he had already taught that God intended to suspend his dealings with an unbelieving and rebellious Israel and turn to believing Gentiles. Christ had made abundantly clear that the benefits of his redemptive work were not to be limited to national ethnic Jews, and the Pharisees understood and deeply resented this teaching. So I'm going to just turn to Matthew 21, 45 and 46. Matthew 21. Okay, okay. It says there, um, verse 43, first of all, it says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He's talking to the Jewish leaders. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It says then, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So um, Jesus was regularly uh, castigate or condemn the non-faith of the Jewish people, especially the Jewish religious leaders, and warning them that they're basically 
not going to be important very much longer. Um, I don't know. Anybody have anything else marked in the remainder of this passage? Let's skip to page uh, 15 then. It says, there can be no argument. Uh, first full paragraph of page 15. There can be no argument that the new covenant benefits of, his, of this sacrificial death are designed, are designed only, there can be no argument that they're designed only for ethnic national Israel. By linking the new covenant promise with the death of Christ, the New Testament indicates that the new covenant recipients are the members of Christ's church, both Jew and Gentile. If this is the case, then when the Old Testament states that the new covenant is made with Israel, the Jews, or the house of Jacob, it does not refer to ethnic national Israel. It refers rather to the new Israel, the multinational, multiracial church of Jesus Christ. Um, I, I don't think it's difficult for us to, you know, to understand and believe that the, uh, the church is made up of many nations, many peoples, many tongues, and that's a wonderful, glorious thing. Um, the, the problem with the dispensational argument is they're trying to, like, um, maintain a, a rigid, cardboardy literalism to the Old Testament words, and they refuse to see it as opened up in the fulfillment of the New Test by the fulfillment of the New Testament authors and writers and Jesus Himself. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, no. Um, but the, uh, the Jews, yeah, they've always been invited to be part of the people of God. Gentiles have always been invited to be part of the people of God, but there wasn't a, a necessarily this great evangelical mission of sending out into all the nations, or at least the, the Jews didn't take that upon themselves, maybe as they could have. But anyone who wanted to come and, and, and follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they could. They just had to be circumcised. They had to be baptized. And they did. They would, they would still be considered by the Jews like maybe a lesser Jew or whatever, but they would, be, they would, be having a, they would have attached themselves to the people of God, and that was good. Yeah, like you got an example. Yeah, 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 it is. Good. So even, even the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, started following the God who, who created him. He came to terms with the idea that the God of the, God of the Hebrews was, was truly uh, God. Uh, queen, you know, was it Queen of the South or Queen of Sheba or whatever? She came up to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So she was at least recognizing there's, there's benefit in, in what's going on in Jerusalem at that time. Yeah, Job's a question mark figure in history, in my mind, what nationality he, he was from. The people of Nineveh, what, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. I think all nations uh, understood, 
whether they lied to themselves or not, that they answered to the God of Abraham. I mean, they answered to the one true God. Um, whether they knew that he had a special relationship he had designed in covenant with Abraham or not, who knows, because they lived across the face of the earth. But they know, all men know, we answer to the one true God. Right, right. Yeah, good. So, yes, yeah, it, it was, yeah, yeah, the flagpole, the Christmas tree, or whatever. Yeah, it was built into them by God that they knew his divine attributes. You know, I, I guess there is another whole page here. Uh, Jesus, let me just go to L um, in, in the handout. Jesus established the new covenant by sacrament at the Last Supper. He says it's a covenant in his blood, okay? In, in, in M, the Lord's Supper was routinely celebrated by Gentiles, we, us included. N, the Apostle Paul calls himself a minister of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. He contrasts his ministry with Moses' ministry. It says there, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the New Covenant is being grabbed in and, and, and understood by Paul as what was taking place with Jesus and his own ministry. Oh, the book of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, a blatant New Covenant prophecy, and then applies it in comparison in the New Covenant of Jesus Christ. Following on the heels of the Jeremiah prophecy, the writer of Hebrews adds, quote, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This he writes, referring to the still standing temple along with its sacrifices and the nation of Israel itself. Hebrews 8.13. P. Sandlin contends the new covenant church has replaced old covenant Israel. Pages 15 and 17, argument 4. David's rebuilt temple is considered by the New Testament church to have already been rebuilt. This is a pretty huge point. R, the passage from Amos, is quoted during Acts 15's Jerusalem Council meeting. The meeting was over concern that the Gentiles should be circumcised and become Jews before they can be admitted into Jesus Christ's church. This idea was refuted by Paul and Peter and others, including James, who quotes from the Amos passage. This is the Amos passage. Amos 9, 11 through 12 says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. You take that passage, Amos 9, 11 through 12, and the dispensational premillennial middle group says, See, that hasn't happened yet. The, the throne of David hasn't been rebuilt in Jerusalem yet. We're still waiting for that. And, and what, what uh, the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 says is, no, this has already taken place, okay? Because look, look what happens in T. 
James contends that the Gentiles are being brought in because Jesus has restored David's once fallen booth or his ruling household. They do not require circumcision because they are invited in as they are. You, Sandlin writes, God was dismantling the physical house of David precisely while he was rebuilding the true house of David. See page 17 in the book. So in other words, um, this is going on in Acts. There was still a temple standing when Jerusalem Council met in Acts chapter 15, and they were having this discussion about the Gentiles. And, and James goes, this is fulfillment of the prophecy that God's going to rebuild David's booth, okay? And so these Gentiles are coming because God has rebuilt it. Jesus is the one, right? And so they're having this discussion all the while. The Jews are going about slaying their animals and so glad to persecute the church and deal with all this, and they've got their temple still standing. And uh, God is in the midst of showing the rebuilding of David's booth while he's tearing it down, okay, and making obsolete the Jews' habit. Habitat. Um, pages 17 through 20, another argument that Sandlin makes. The New Testament calls believing Jews true Jews. Okay? W, on pass, and passage quoted from this is Romans, uh, one passage quoted from this is Romans 9, 22 through 26. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So, X, Gentiles are vessels of mercy, are the vessels of mercy named here. They are now called sons of the living God. And then why the new covenant church is composed of faithful Jews and Gentiles has replaced unbelieving, rebellious, old covenant ethnic Israel. Z, people from all races can now be considered spiritual Jews. We would be going backwards, backwards, if indeed the church age ended, and now all of a sudden God was going to go back to temple worship, you know, with sacrifices and a priesthood and the Jews, and they would be, that would, that's real, it's insanity. It, yeah, it demotes him. It, it just kind of like goes, oh, all that we've just told you, that Paul and Peter and everybody has told you, it doesn't matter now because it's time for the Jews again. That's just silliness. But that is a premillennial dispensational argument. It was the Jews, then there's the church age, and then God's time clock will, time clock will turn back to the Jews again. Construe? Uh, it, uh, I would say they misconstrue Revelation. I think Revelation, many of the scenes are repeat scenes, and I think they are talking about uh, then, now, and forever. I think that there are scenes that are meant to take in like the whole first and second advent, or, or, or you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I think they're looking at all the 
cataclysmic things in Revelation, and they're trying to make it seem like bad things are going to happen. What? Dispensational? They definitely would like to see a lot of that stuff viewed as our future yet. I, I can't speak to every scenario but, or person, but... Any other thoughts or questions? Sorry about that raciness. Not only so that Christ will return secretly to steal us away, eventually set up a kingdom later after seven years, but also so that millions upon millions of Jews will be slaughtered. Okay, and, 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 and the other problem is, is so they're taking these millions of dollars that they're giving to like fulfill their prophecy, and they could be investing in businesses, they could be, you know, uh, maybe investing in, 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 in efforts to change things for the good uh, of our own nation or whatever. It's craziness. It's really crazy. And they're not doing the work of the church as they should because they're waiting for the, the great escape, you know, which... Yeah, and, I, and I'm not saying, I, I guess I would say we as a nation probably have a lot more in common with other nations that are of like mind in some ways, like maybe Israel and England, you know, and, but that doesn't, that doesn't forgive outrageous wrongs, but what's that? Yeah, right, right. And, and someone brought up, could this be World War Three? Well, yeah, World War Three can happen. And World War IV can happen in five over the next multi-thousands of years. Who knows? Um, but how do we see the future? Is the future doom and gloom? Is the future uh, gradually bright and better? And I, I think we'll get a lot more motivated people to work for God's kingdom if they view the future as bright and better, that what they do today matters for tomorrow, than just like stockpiling your little bunker until Jesus rescues you. Re- rescues you from the Antichrist and, and tribulation potential. <laughs> or whatever. I, I just, uh, I, uh, anyway. Yeah, sorry, got a little tedious there. We'll pray. Lord, thanks for this time, and uh, thank you for the work of uh, P. Andrew Sandlin, and ask that uh, we would continue to think hard and with difficult passages to explain in some cases, too. In, in Jesus' name, amen.